exciting revelations in the briefing that went out yesterday. I didn't even know until I read the briefing. Oh, you didn't know? I didn't know. I mean, like you had told me that there was a chance you guys were going to get the gear back because QHE was like, maybe. All right, slow down, slow down. Okay. Okay. So if people don't know and you haven't listened to the story yet, I lost Alex's camera gear a few weeks ago in Korea. And yeah, we pretty much wrote it off. Um, Our insurance, unfortunately, doesn't cover stuff that is lost outside of the US. The scenario lended itself to not a lot of upside. I mean, I took a cab. I paid with cash. Didn't know the cab company, the license plate. You guys were getting on a flight to Japan that day. Yeah. So I was kind of like, yeah, it's not going to work out. So, but... Yeah, so this is kind of the interesting part. We had a friend on the ground there whose name's Kumi, not Kiwi, Kumi. Oh, uh, okay. Small detail. And Kumi put in a ton of work to help us find out, you know, all the different avenues to potentially recover the gear. And she was speaking with the police station that was nearby, I think. And they actually pulled the security footage from off the street. And it showed my mug getting into a cab what the cab license plate was and ended up tracking down the driver. That's amazing. And whether or not the driver is going to turn it in, we don't know because he said that he was waiting to be contacted for us to get the gear back instead of just turning it in. But regardless, it's um, it's still in Korea, but it'll hopefully be back September 20th. It's no longer the cab driver. No. Okay. No. Good, good, good. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was exciting. And the way you phrased it in the briefing was like, 1.2 surveillance. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of an interesting thing because we always talk about surveillance being this negative thing. I mean, it depends on how you look at it. If you, some people are always like, oh, I mean, I have nothing to hide, so I don't really care. And then there's often not a lot of direct benefit that comes from it. I mean, it does and doesn't. I think it's more when it comes to like crime-based things, perhaps, yeah. because it's usually like, it's more like a, a passive way of like monitoring people, right? In other news, if you guys have uh, followed along recently, Sharice has had a larger role within the editorial side. And I'm happy to announce that she's going to start involving herself with more stories and basically changing her career, changing her <laughs> career path. No longer a designer. Now you're going to be a full-fledged editorial person. Yeah, I... Before you start, I guess the, the thing that I'm most excited about is just having someone with a different point of view. And yeah. not to say that everyone on the team currently thinks the same, but we all sort of come from a similar background. We're all male, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's just good to have someone else who finds interest in other things, right? Yeah. The subject matter is going to change. Yeah. How you approach things are going to change. Like we could be both presented with the same story. And the reality of it is that we'll both tackle it differently. And there's not necessarily a right or wrong way. It's just that how do you view the important bits of this story versus myself? To speak to that, I was listening to the Sheryl Sandberg episode of Masters of Scale, which is a podcast hosted by Reed Hoffman. And something Sheryl Sandberg says about diversity is that it's not just about diversity in gender or ethnicity, but in cognitive thinking. And that's what you're getting at. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, I don't want 
things to just follow one trajectory. I find when you're always relying on the same people or the same things, there's generally a smaller variance of what can occur. And yeah. I think that's really important is that work with different people that introduce new ideas, new thoughts, maybe even feel uncomfortable about things. You know, yeah, like yeah. if you p- presented something that that wouldn't fall under a traditional making 2.0 editorial direction, why can't it be making editorial 2.1? You know, like start varying how we do things. Yeah. Not necessarily changing the brand in into itself, but just having different ways of approaching stories and whatnot. I think there's value, even if I suggest things that don't fit what you think of as making, being able to even think about, oh, why doesn't this fit? Like if I suggest an idea and you're like, oh, that's not a story making would do. Like what is it about this story? That's something making doesn't do. Just by introducing friction, you have to deal with the reason behind that friction. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. And just to speak a little bit on the choosing to do something different from my regular skill set. I figured the way that people work today, there is more value for people who are willing to learn many things and become semi-experts in more areas as opposed to being an extreme expert in just one thing. I'm going to stop you there because I think that will come up. roll into one of the discussion topics today. Yeah. So so that's gonna, that's all I say right now. I'm going to get us started today. I okay. think you and I are going to have a lot of stuff to talk about. There is because this first topic, this topic that you want to talk about is something I know you are fascinated by. Like as far back as six months ago, I think I can remember a conversation we had. Yeah. Or further, maybe even a year, like way back you were on this topic. nine months. All right. So tell me. I just had no, I just had no execution. Anyways. um, Yeah. So my topic is, is the future of social media, media in general through decentralization. An article on Brave New Coin highlights a path for social media focused on decentralization and blockchain. Okay. Before we go any further. I think you're going to have to define blockchain. I'm not going to spend too much time going into it. I'll include something in the show notes, but it's essentially an open book or a ledger with all the transactions, executions, or consumptions of something. So everyone's seeing everything that's being transacted, right? And if anything goes wrong, anything goes fishy, you have this full transparency where every single thing is available for all people involved. I have a question. Can blockchain only be applied to currency or can the concept of blockchain be applied to anything? The concept has a lot of different implications. So virtually every industry can incorporate blockchain in some capacity. Okay. Because blockchain's greatest asset is that you no longer need to have like this centralized authority. So two people that don't know each other can don't need a bank necessarily to transact money. So I, I mean, you asked... Can it exist outside of, you know, cryptocurrencies? Yes, it can. So other options would be- I just meant like that term can be applied widely. Correct. Okay, Maybe what I can do is, I remember coming across a list of blockchain integrations across a ton of different industries. Okay. Like supply chain stuff is really- I mean, I don't think we have to get into it. I just wanted to know if blockchain is currency specific or not. Correct. So- Continue. um, before Before we get into what decentralized social media means- it's probably helpful to just look at what the current social media landscape entails, right? So just so you guys have an understanding of how things work now and how they could work in the future. 
So as you know, content created on any given social media network is leveraged against advertising. I actually think that while I agree with you, I think we have to back up one step and just explain how we reached that argument. Which argument? The argument that social media networks are leveraged against advertising. Okay. So, okay. Let, let's go all the way back. What are the big social media networks? Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat. We'll okay. Say. How do these social media networks earn their money? It's not through their users because these services are free. You and I and everyone else, we don't pay to create an account on Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We pay in a different way. Yes. So how is it that they monetize? So the monetization generally occurs through advertising. Yep. So as you know, you're getting tracked everywhere you go. Yeah. There's a ton of information on your user habits that are being tracked and then being repackaged and sold to advertisers. Yeah. Basically. So I want to jump in here and emphasize this point. I was reading this great long article from London Review of Books that's about Facebook. And one of the things the author mentions, and we'll, I'll include this in the show notes, is the idea that we are not Facebook's customers. Their customers are their advertisers. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. But we they need both parties to exist, right? Facebook is di- basically the distribution network. They need us to exist the really bleak way to frame this is that they need us as users to exist only to serve their actual customers, the advertisers. Okay. So social media networks, they capture all this data. They capture keystrokes. They have, you know, intense profiles about each one of us. This is a centralized social media system. This is what we're all buying into by having this on our phones, having these accounts. Brave New Coin is talking about a new approach that the future could hold. Mm, I think they're more encapsulating the general movement. Like they're not necessarily saying anything revelational. They're just giving examples. Okay. But I just thought it was relevant to bring this up because it also introduced, it just packaged it in a way that I yeah. think will be helpful for people that are a little bit unfamiliar with what blockchain can do in the context of publishing and media. So as, as Sharice mentioned, in a centralized approach, Facebook... Instagram, et cetera, you kind of see how it works. In a decentralized approach, there isn't one defined gatekeeper per se. So- Can you be more specific about what a gatekeeper is? Well, I guess in the sense that like Facebook is keeping everything behind closed doors, like algorithmically, all that stuff. Like you don't really have access or privy to that. Yep. Right. And also because that's their proprietary- sort of advantage of having all this knowledge on their users. Like there's no reason why they would share that. Yep. Right. Yeah. I just mean like a gatekeeper is a private corporation. Yeah. I guess that's the way of looking We're at it. We're not saying like Mark Zuckerberg, the person is a gatekeeper, just like the way things are yeah. set up. It's that these for-profit private corps. Yeah. So are holding the keys. Continue. Yeah. So in s- the most prominent example of a decentralized social media platform currently is probably steam it. It's the world's first blockchain-based decentralized social network. So Steemit, to be very fair, is basically Reddit. Reddit clone. Yeah, a Reddit clone. But the difference is your upvotes have an actual value associated with it. Have an actual monetary value. Correct. We're not talking like cultural capital. No. like actual, actual fiscal value. Yeah, there's actual monetary value associated with, associated with it. Thanks to their 
thanks to one of their currencies, thanks to one of their, their mechanisms called Steam. All caps. I think currencies is more accurate. I'm, I'm saying, yeah. Because the thing is, it's kind of confusing because Steam has also Steam dollars. So I don't actually want to get too much into Steam versus Steam dollars. Okay. But okay. I'm, We're not here to debate the fine points of cryptocurrencies. It's more about the overarching direction of what social media can look like. All right. There's a system in place that gives your content and your upvotes a monetary value. Correct. That's all we need to know. Yeah. So on Steam and other incoming concepts, there's a specific change to the business model. You're able to be, as you mentioned, rewarded monetarily for your efforts. There's no specific focus on advertising. Not that there can't be. It's just that, you know, there's another revenue stream in place. And scale no longer carries the same weight as it does in a traditional social media network. Because my understanding of Steemit and other these new wave social media platforms is that they're operating at cost. So they're not trying to advertise because it's like almost a social exercise, like a social experiment in can the network sustain itself monetarily. Cause obviously there is some cost to running a server to, even though it's very bare bones, like there's not a lot of design going on. There is still some cost, but the. So with the costs, a lot of it, I'm pretty sure, is just accrued or like they pay for costs through when 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 tokens are generated, when currency is generated, they just skim off the top. Okay. So that's how they make sure that certain people are properly compensated for stuff outside of, in this context, content creation and curation. Yeah. I still think that stuff like Steemit has a relatively high learning curve because it's not necessarily the content side because it's just like Reddit, mm-hmm. but just making sure that you understand how the tokens are created, how to secure them with a wallet. Like, honestly, for me, even for myself, like I've been looking at cryptocurrencies for a while, but I just, I don't really care about the store value side, which is, I think, what has been the more prominent play currently. Like, as you- Meteoric as you see, rise. I don't want to use that word. As you see <laughs> the way Bitcoin has increased in value, right? Yes. Like a lot of people are yes. debating, is it a store value? Is it like digital gold? Um, honestly, I don't, I'm not big into that. So I've even at this point in time, like I don't own any cryptocurrencies. I, I follow it. It's fine. I think what you're, yeah. you're just expressing that our current discussion is not about investing is not like about personal passive income. Like we're not here to talk about that. No, we're talking about how the concept. Block, yes, exactly. Well, also how this concept applies, not for, not specifically to earn us as individuals, like large amounts of money. Like I think a lot of, I think a lot of cryptocurrency discussions now are like, should I be investing? Like, how does this earn me money? That's not what we're here to discuss. We're here to talk about how this affects creating content, sharing content, correct? Um, creating communities. Yeah. So and even though you said that the steam at barrier is high, which I agree, like you have to wrap your head around the system steam. You have to do things like, I don't know, set up a bank account, I assume. Set up a wallet. Yeah, set up some kind of payment system. It's not but that, it that has hundreds complex. of thousands of users. Like 120,000 users. I mean, there's that's, money involved. That's higher than right? I thought, yeah. honestly. But I, I think this will kind of play into my next few points of yeah. what are the benefits of a decentralized social media network, right? Yeah. First off, theoretically, quality of content improves. Poor content simply can't be transacted for attention, right? Like you're not going to, spend hard-earned money on upvoting something if it's not of real value. Secondly, I think 
Wait, can we stay on that one a little bit? I like your inclusion of the word theoretical because it's really dependent on what people perceive as valuable. The quality of content might not improve I mean, you can you and me, but think about it. If clickbait is generally understood as something that doesn't provide what it's advertising, right? Yeah. If like clickbait generally won't exist because you're not going to, you're not going to click on something and feel as though the actual value derived from the content exceeds what was promoted on the headline. So that's why I think that it's theoretically going to improve the quality content created, curated. But I also believe that what it does do is there's no incentive to necessarily create things that need to exist so much as like, what is going to make me the most money? That's sort yeah. of the thing. That's like a, a little bit of a, a consideration that needs to be put on the table. Okay. First talking about the way people's upvotes are related to giving money. The minimum thing that we can say is going to happen is that we will have increased knowledge of what people value. I'm not going to say like, oh, what people value is going to be higher quality content. We're just going to have more information about what people are willing to put their money towards. Does that make sense? Like clickbait gets views. So by looking at the view metric, it's inaccurate because it's just that people wanted to see what this is. It's not that they then left and were happy with what they saw. Yeah. With the with this system where upvotes cost you money, you get to attribute something more real. Yeah. I, I, I have to mention this. Yeah. Go the for it. actual value in and itself, like you're not coming out of pocket. We want to talk I, about I, the quality of content, right? Yeah. So some other stuff on the periphery includes network effects being really strong. So network effects being the more people involved, the more powerful it gets. Social media obviously is a great representation of this. But What's it, different though yeah, is it. that when you have money on the table and you're invested through tokens or whatnot, you have a personal incentive to make sure you're increasing the value of this because the better the network becomes, the more valuable it becomes, the more valuable your stake becomes. Right. So that means the quality of content you're going to share, the people that you put it on to, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I really like this aspect to think about because I think there's, we, you and I know a lot of people take great photos, are amazing illustrators, designers, and they post their content to Instagram and Facebook freely. And they, I have heard these complaints. I'm sure you have heard these complaints where they're like, I create so much value for this platform. I drive people to Instagram by posting all of my great original work and I get nothing from it. Yeah. Well, not nothing. You get visibility. Like but you don't have a stake in the platform. Yeah. You get some, you get things that are tangential from your Instagram presence. Like maybe a client sees your profile and you get a job from that, but you don't have a stake in the platform there's no, itself. There's no direct monetization from your efforts. Yeah. It's always going to be, Runoff is the wrong word, but it's basically you need to rely on something else to happen through a chain reaction. Yeah, And another, another side too is that blockchain does open up other monetization efforts that aren't necessarily like micro-tipping. Because in a way, Steemit is like micro-tipping, right? Yeah. Well, there's other ways to look at it, such as attention-based protocols. So what that means is that 
if you go on a site and you spend 10 minutes on this article versus 10 seconds, you will basically be compensating the publisher for those 10 minutes versus, you know, the 10 seconds being a lesser amount. So that means engaging content actually has a direct correlation. So this kind of gets into a question that I had for you about whether these decentralized social media networks can be co-opted by corporations. When you, when you introduce corporations into the equation, what do you mean by that? Do you mean they own it? And then like, what's stopping Facebook from doing this similar sort of approach? I think I am just curious because so far it sounds like this is, if not necessarily all positive, this is a positive turn. And I just want to know how can this be turned into something not positive? Because I feel like there is that possibility. Well, that's kind of the beauty of blockchain, right? It's decentralized. So they can involve themselves in the equation. I think what's going to be interesting in the next few years is that there's so many banks that are just hoarding all these blockchain patents. Yeah. So I don't know what... Well, I just mean like, so what you're saying is that the decentralization blockchain itself is bulletproof in some way from being monopolized by a single party. That is the goal. That's the whole beauty of blockchain. Yeah. I mean, I just guess I'm not. I'm not very conniving. So I haven't thought of a way of abusing blockchain. That is exactly what I'm saying. It's like, I I haven't thought of it. I am not that clever, but I just feel it's there. There has to be a way. I mean, there, there are certain things that people express as being a concern. So for example, when it comes to the currency itself, if the if let's say hypothetically Steemit, you know, releases 10 million tokens into the environment and 7 million of those tokens are owned by one person, that's a corporation, mm-hmm. they can totally f- make things fluctuate and whatnot. But then that has to happen in the first place, right? I just, I... Because in reality, like, that, the, the reason why that, that's like a, an example of how things can potentially go wrong. Yeah. But that's also slightly different as a conversational piece because it's less about the actual content mechanism, if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. It's like more on the business side. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we're going to find ways and see how people obviously mess around with the system. Exactly. I think still like there's whatever exists currently, blockchain is already considered a much better, much more democratic solution. Or at least we can say for the first time there is an alternative solution. Yes, there's an alternative solution. Just by there being an option for people to use something that's not Reddit, something that's not Twitter or Facebook, et cetera, is good. The more players there are, the more the power is shared around. I mean, the, the big thing that's sort of revealing itself, and I've said this many times, is that we're starting to see this bifurcation that exists between social media's entertainment and true knowledge. So social media being on the entertainment side, knowledge being something that just has has to happen outside of social media because they have such conflicting agendas, right? Like knowledge is not this quick, easy turnaround thing with a lot of scale. Like there's actual rigor that goes into like acquiring knowledge. So that's, that's something to be considered of as well. I mean, I, 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 part of me wonders would stuff that's popular on Reddit also be popular on other platforms like Steemit, whether like 
when it comes to, for example, memes, right? Like it's so easy to tap that, but like, would I spend money on that? Yeah. It's not that, it's not that memes, like I'm trying to. No, no, I, this is exactly one of the questions I had for you that I wanted to talk about is how does the idea of micro tipping affect the kind of content you create? And that's what you're getting at. You know, like does just knowing that people can micro tip or not change what I post? Like, am I going to post this meme? I think it's all dependent on the platform, right? Like if this is a platform that, because that's the thing is like, let's say that there is the rise of a gamer social network, which I'm sure exists. I just don't know what it is, right? Wait, you're talking about Twitch. Well, Twitch, I always looked as a streaming platform. I guess if you want to- Okay, like this is my own sort of lack of of Uh, knowledge. I'm going to say Twitch counts. Okay, Twitch. Let's say Twitch, right? Like, Okay. Obviously that demographic will react differently to content posted on medium, for example, right? Like if you post, oh, this is a funny replay of something that happened while I was playing FIFA. Like obviously they'll react much differently than if you post that somewhere else. Actually, it's so interesting. I didn't think of this in preparation, but the way Twitch works is you you can make an account for free and you can stream for free, but built into Twitch is a money subscription system. So when you follow someone that you pay them a certain amount of money or you are charged a certain amount of money and you can tip using real money as well. So you have to top up your wallet and not the con of it being Twitch, which is still centralized, is that a percentage of that money goes to Twitch itself. But Twitch is like one step Well, Twitch has just made a decision to not monetize through advertising essentially and to monetize through the system they've set up with their content creators. One thing that's worth mentioning too is that there's a little bit of back and forth debate over whether you actually need a cryptocurrency in this capacity. Like why couldn't it just be money, for example? But I think that for me, the, my, my one pushback is always going to be the network effects. So like if you own hypothetically, if, if you own, you know, 50,000 tokens and you would obviously be incentivized to improve that place. Whereas like, if there isn't that, then I think it's just money. Well, I think because money is something people currently have or don't have already. And if it was money, then big players who already have a lot of money in real life can go into that system and abuse it Yeah, just by having money. IRL. The reason I wanted to bring up Leroy, which is another new platform that admittedly I don't know a whole lot about, but what I do know about Leroy is that it costs 0.01. Like one cent. Like one cent of ether. Yeah. Which is based off of Ethereum. Correct. To make an account. And then it also costs you some like one cent of Ethereum to create like a post. So Leroy is a Twitter clone. And it means that each tweet costs you money. And I was just thinking about this idea of, because you and I use Twitter. How does it change what you post knowing that every tweet costs you money? You're going to maximize all 140 characters. There's that. And then also just like, there's a whole thing, a whole bunch of things you wouldn't tweet. Yeah, no, totally. And that, that's interesting because I don't know that much about Leroy, but if the ultimate goal is like, you have to invest money to share your message, 
But the potential upside is that you could make back that one cent. Like, I think that'd be really powerful. Like, let's say I'm just making this up. Like, you know, one cent a post, but if you reach a certain metric, then you would get one cent back. And then there's obviously a scale. You know, if if you have whatever, 100,000 interactions, you make a hundred bucks. I'm interested in how it changes my own thinking and other people's psychology when it comes to something that used to be really casual. Yeah. There's a lot of people that discuss user habits, like micro tipping as a user habit is, has a lot of friction. That's what people say. Right. And how do you feel about that? So for example, if you know that you're going to read an article and you have to part ways with money, does it change anything? Or or are you also warming up to the idea? Like, is it something that needs to be sold to you below the surface? So such as like, Hey, you know what? If you embrace micro tipping, the great content that you enjoy will have sustainability. Cause I think that's the thing that people get caught up on is just the interactional element and less the what's the future return. But I mean, humanity, as long as we've known has had issues picturing anything beyond today at that present moment. Right. Cause it's uncertain. I'm on board with micro tipping. Yeah. Like I personally, based on what making is like, I'm big into contributing to the ecosystem of publishers when, when, when I, when it's possible. Right. Like I have a lot of content memberships for the most part. Yeah. I think a little bit different from, okay. So there's tipping in real life situations, right? Like, in the States, you tip waiters, like you tip at restaurants or in some cultures, you tip the cab driver. And I'm not a huge fan of that kind of tipping because I think that tipping system, one side effect is that it results in allowing companies to pay their workers less and rely on tipping. And I know that there are people who will disagree with me on this, but I think actually a lot of people are in agreement with you. Oh, really? Like I think the the general consensus is that most people don't like that system. Oh, okay. Thank like, God. It, I like, was like, I don't know if I'm, I th- honestly thought maybe I was expressing like an unpopular opinion, but that's how I feel about tipping and not because like, I don't want to give, not because I am yeah. stingy with my dollars, but mm-hmm. I just don't want to buy into a system where companies can pay workers less. Yeah. Anyway, not the point. The point that I'm trying to get at though is that why I'm a fan of micro tipping for content is because I want to be in control of, I want to contribute to having quality content created. And by allowing me to micro tip things that I value, I get a voice in saying like, this is good. Yeah. And much more of a voice. Like, what do I do now? Like when I think something is really well written, I tweet about it or I share it with my friends or I say, hey, you need to read this that doesn't necessarily translate into value to the author. And especially if it's on a particular platform where they cannot monetize. Yeah. You know, it's just an intransient effect. Like I, I, this happens on Twitter a lot really is like I read an article and I think everyone should read this. Like this is really well written, but my influence is so small. And I would feel like if I could contribute monetarily to that author, it would be a bigger effect. Yeah. Yeah. One of the big things I believe is that people are quick to dismiss based on theory alone, but if the model or opportunity doesn't exist, then you'll never know. Just to put all your eggs in one basket and be like, Hey, 
this one person tried or this one platform tried to do it and they failed. I don't think that necessarily suggests that it's a total failure. Like sometimes you just need several people all pushing towards the same agenda. One thing is like, I think overall we kind of, we kind of deviated a little bit from blockchain and social media, which is fine. But I mean, it kind of was a nice segue. Well, I think, I mean, it stemmed from it. It's not that we deviated so much as it brought in other parts of this picture. Because there are micro, there are micro tipping publishers or basically. Well, most trendy right now or most in the news right now is Medium. Medium's one, but I didn't know if you want to talk about clapping. Mm, Not really. Blendle was before that. I don't even know what Blendle is. So Blendle like allows you to basically. So Blendle is a startup out of Europe and what they do is they aggregate or they consolidate a bunch of publishers and then you have micropayments. So if you read an article in the New York Times, you can microtip it. I think something that we've been sort of getting at, but we haven't said really explicitly is when you introduce the element of some kind of monetary value, it will make everything more thoughtful. As in it forces me as a user and as a creator to think more about how I'm interacting on these platforms because likes and retweets are worth very, very, very little. Like not even in cultural, do you know what I'm saying? The lack of of friction makes things not valuable. Yeah. I can already see some interesting parallels with our next topic. topic I picked to discuss with you is whether great things can happen within a 40 hour work week or do great things happen when people choose to exceed the nine to five and work outside of those hours. And this comes from a, well, just to say this comes from an article is not accurate because this is something a lot of people talk about, like how much time should you spend doing your job essentially in all fairness we often use articles as a reference point to discuss things yeah Yeah, so just as a reference point okay so this is clearly not a new topic but the reason we happen to be discussing it today is we read this op-ed in the sunday review of the new york times called in silicon valley working nine to five is for losers and it's by dan lyons the article discusses a couple of things. One, mainly that Silicon Valley brands workaholism as a desirable lifestyle, that hustling is something to be proud of. Like the idea of hustle is most important. Um, And the author admits the glorification of workaholism can strike outsiders as tone deaf. There was a whole Lyft fiasco where Lyft was- I actually wasn't aware of that. The Lyft fiasco? I actually, I actually wasn't aware of that. Oh, you weren't? You didn't hear that news when it happened? No. Okay. So Lyft, I don't know, a couple months back, yeah. a while back had published a blog post that praised a driver who kept taking rides even after she went into labor 
and then drove to, after like finishing her last job, drove to the hospital to give birth. And Lyft itself as a company didn't see a problem with posting that. But a lot of people who read it were saying, what led this driver to need to do that? Like, isn't this an indication of a broken system where this pregnant in labor mother needs to be working up until literally giving birth? What if they praised her, but also said, don't do this? (laughs) That's what, I mean, that's what I'm thinking. Like, I think it's admirable that you're committed to something, but at the same time, like Uber and Lyft or whoever, like Lyft didn't force her to continue driving. That was on her own volition. But I also agree. You should take care of yourself. I don't think that as if I was a PR consultant, I would just say don't post it because there's too many variables. Like we're not certain about the results of this. So just don't say anything. Um, But anyway, to continue about the article or the general idea of workaholism in Silicon Valley slash outside of it is that nine to five is for the week. That working just 40 hours is for people who can't hack working more than 40 hours. My thoughts on that. Do you want to address this? Do you want to address this first or do you want me to go and discuss the other side of the coin? Um, maybe discuss the other side. I'll let you finish okay. and then be- before okay. I have my two cents. All right. So there are obviously many people on either side of this argument, you know, work 40 hours, don't work 40 hours, et cetera. But one outspoken, what's the word for when someone advocates for something? One one outspoken advocate for... Okay. One outspoken advocate for only working 40 hours in a week is David Heinemeyer. I'm going to say that wrong. I don't know. David Hansen, who's founder and CTO at Basecamp. And he says, people can secede without working themselves to death. I agree with that. He goes on to say, you know, he goes on to say that workaholism of an individual trickles down into everything you touch. So it's not just a personal choice in Silicon Valley. It's a choice that affects those around you, those people you work with and possibly like your family and friends. And he sort of criticizes these startup founders for providing employees these carrots, like inducements in the office, such as a PS4, to stay in the office. And then also he criticizes employers for constantly focusing employees on the startup's mission in a way that tries to get them to buy into working more as a way of furthering the mission. Like I am doing such a heroic thing by working 70 hours a week or however much. Do you think I'm guilty of that? I only threw in the PS4 because we have one, but I don't, I don't for a second think that you got us one to keep us in the office. Yeah, it was for my own pleasure. Okay, guys? <laughs> no, no, no. That, that's not, I wasn't trying to like sideswipe it, It's you. interesting because that part about mission, buying to the mission, like that's what everyone kind of instructs you to do as like a, a founder or whatnot. I think- No, yeah, I know that that is what they instruct you to do as a founder and having clear mission is important. David Hansen isn't saying like, don't have clear mission. It's don't use the mission as a way to provoke your employees into putting in more hours than is necessary. Do you know what I mean? Like don't make the company out to be some kind of 
bringer of greater good to the world so much that you need to make a personal sacrifice to further that good. I mean, I I can see the value in having someone that's laser focused on the mission. You know, like no one generally cares as much as the founders, founding team, et cetera. So it's not from a business perspective, from launching a company, startup, whatever. I see immense value in having people that buy into it. Right. And I think that, well, obviously his perspective is valid as well because he's not only done a lot of crazy things, like he invented Ruby on Rails and stuff. He's obviously very familiar with what you can achieve. Yeah. But I, my overall takeaway from this is that it's a celebration of hard work that I, I believe is, is what should be looked upon. Not necessarily working too much because I think working too much is, so I always get this too, is like, what I, what people perceive to be work to me, which, you know, if you're in an office, it's work. I mean, it's how I like to spend my time period. Right. And if that is, if, if there's a blurred line between work and leisure, which I've been very fortunate to do for pretty much most of my professional career is like work in a place that I truly value everything I do. Like I enjoy it. Right. It's not really work, but I'm also I'm also not going out and being like, hey guys, I worked this much. You know, like I think that's the big thing is that don't tell someone how much they can or cannot work. Right. But also be aware that it's it's that very act of focusing to the outside world and signaling, oh, I deserve success because I put in so much work. I think that's where the flawed thinking exists. Okay. I understand the differentiation you are making that you think what's toxic is the celebration of excessive hard work and not the hard work itself. Correct. It's a celebration. Right. And I was pretty sure you were going to fall on this side because of having worked with you long enough to know that you spend many hours working, essentially all of your waking hours. Yeah, for the most part. Is on the job. But I, I would never for a second, like, go to Twitter and be like, oh, I'm grinding so hard or like sleep is right. for the week. You know, so, like I've never done that. Right, right. No, I'm not saying, I'm not accusing you of doing that. I think, I want, maybe you already recognize this, but I think there is a danger in how your personal work decisions affect other people. Yeah. Even if, if you don't want it to. I'm just saying, I don't think you can ignore the fact that even if you don't go around saying, hey guys, I worked until 4am and woke up at six, like go back to the office. Like I know you don't do that, but just by doing it, I think can have a negative effect on people you work with. Do you ever feel pressured that there's an expectation that you need to do above and beyond, or you need to like put in more than is expected? I think because you're because you are a founder and your personal working decisions are the way you have set them up, this will influence people regardless of whether they know it or not. I don't think people cognizantly think, oh, Eugene's working until really late tonight, so I'm going to work really late. But by having worked with you for a year and knowing that you work late every night of every week, it will seep into your own work decisions. Like me as a someone who works with you. Yeah. Or someone else as someone who works with Because you. I was thinking about this and there, there's a general hierarchy to how I approach work, right? Like, am I, am I physically taken care of? 
right? Am I sleeping enough? Am I well rested? I think because that that is the very foundation of anything I pursue, right? Like if I'm not in that space and I think the work will generally suffer. Like if I don't sleep well, I come to the office, I'm like a zombie. It's not gonna, it's not gonna be a good day. Secondly, there is a big part of me that has always valued hard work. And I think that's just taken away from my parents and whatnot. Like that is who I am, right? I also believe, and this is where my ammunition comes in. Cause it's so I told you this, I, I read this one article that counteracted the idea of, you know, only 40 hours. Basically yesterday we were playing mind games with each other and trying to guess what each other's arguments would be. Because you told me this, you were like, Hey, I read an article that I think is going to counter whatever your argument is. That's essentially what you said. And then do you know what I did is that I actually went through your Twitter feed to try and figure out which article it was. I don't, I don't post anything on Twitter until after it's been used. In some capacity. For oh, and then I realized that because I like, I scrolled back a couple of days. I was like, none of this is it. Like I can't, yeah. I can't properly well, well, prepare. One thing I need to say too is like, I think happiness, personal happiness is also very important. So like whether that comes through uh, taking care of yourself physically, like personal happiness is also key to good work, right? Just being motivated, being invigorated, et cetera. But something that can't be too far from this whole conversation is there's this economist by the name of, Tyler Cohen, and he said, average is over. The middle class is gone. Either you're among the select few who are thriving or you're like the most people who are distracted, overweight, and struggling. The choice is yours. When something sucks, do you quit or do you push through and eventually enjoy the satisfaction of growth and success? Just to preface, like he didn't say that whole passage, but that's part of the article. I'm actually a fan of Tyler Cohen. Yeah, but I think everything that came after his quote was from the author of the article. And then there's another part within that says, people are taught to love themselves regardless of their performance. Thus, they justify mediocrity. Yet Asians and other immigrant groups who often are considered to have low self-esteem consistently outperform Americans who have high self-esteem. Unlike in other parts of the world where hard work is seen as a virtue, the repeated phrase in America is, don't work too hard. Success these days is to get as much as you can for as little work as possible. So, it's ironic because what was the conversation yes, last week? Yeah, so I, I was going to mention this. The conversation last week, if, if, you had, if you didn't listen to last week's podcast, spoke about money and self-esteem. For me personally, and in the words of Jay-Z, what you do don't make me shit, right? Like I don't, I don't really care if, if you want to live you know, a, the life that you want to live, right? It's, yeah, I'm not here judging just, people. I just think that I, I agree. Yeah. I know that we are independent, autonomous beings who make our own work schedules. I think that we influence each other, whether we want it to or not. That what you choose to do will influence what I choose to do and vice versa. And and, and in this office. Yeah. But I guess what I'm, what I'm advocating for is that when you actually put in the work and you, the, the, Rewards are that much more impactful. Okay, this is, I'm not, I agree that hard work is valuable and I also value people who are willing to spend a lot of time making a thing right or like if not perfecting a thing, but just putting in time to make the things that they dream of realities. Okay, so I'm I'm for that. Actually, so I had a bit of, an internal debate with myself about whether to bring this up. But I think if you, if we had had this conversation two months ago, I would have been coming to you differently. 
on this. And you know this because I've had some personal emergencies, um, Mm -hmm. some family related emergencies, and that has given me new perspective on this topic. I think we need to be careful, not just of how we say and present ourselves, but the habits that we ingrain, like the routines we develop, because in emergency situations, maybe that was unhealthy. We have to allow ourselves situations in which to behave differently. Yeah. Everything you said is valid. All I can, all I can say is that pick and choose how you want to approach. And this is meant just as like sort of a, an account, an encapsulator, right? Like, what do you want your legacy to be? Like, what do you want people to know you for? And that's up to you. Like if you look back and, you know, and you're happy with what you've achieved, no one's, I'm, I'm not going to for a second be like, yo, you should have achieved more, but I have personal standards for myself. And I also push people that have personal standards that are quite high for other people as well. And how, how they achieve that, what they want to achieve it, that's up to them. But I think that if there's not someone, at least they're pushing you and understanding that this is not something that you need to achieve. You know, if, if your goal is to achieve this and like you're working towards it, I think already that is much more important than acknowledging I'm not even going to try. And I think that's what the key thing exists. Like, I, I think we're getting a bit away from the conversation, like the exact concept of, you know, the talk. But- I actually think, so this is, this is my stance. I think it's okay to work over 40 hours in a week. And you know that I've been bootstrapping myself as a freelancer for two years and I regularly work over 40 hours a week. I don't do a nine to five. Yeah. Yeah, I work at nights. I think that, I don't know what the control is for this, but it's dangerous to not be able to let go of that routine and those work habits in situations that call for it. Because if in my case, an emergency comes up and you beat yourself over the head that you didn't get to put in as much work. Like that's really not helpful. Like you need to still be able to let go of what that week should have looked like and not feel guilty. Like not feel like, Oh, I didn't put in the work because I'm just not capable of it right now. Yeah. And I know we're talking about like, you know, regular case and not these exceptions. I think being able to see founders handle these exceptions a certain way also will influence your team. Yeah. So does that mean that I should be the first one to leave and go work offsite and then deliver all my work in the morning? I mean, you don't, you don't get a sense of anxiety. Well, maybe you do. When you get a message from me late at night under the right medium, like, Hey, you know what? I send it in a certain place under the expectation. You don't need to check it or action it until the regular office hours that we, that we have. You know how you were saying that you do still try to take care of yourself physically, you know, get enough sleep. I think those things are really important for teams to see. Like one thing I, not that I consciously calculate every time you go to footy, but the fact that you make time to leave the office early to go play is significant. Like, yeah, I mean, I think that's something that I would always advocate. If you want to go and go to a CrossFit class or a yoga class at 2.30 p.m. But I think it translates it. like, I know that you get a lot of personal enjoyment out of work and that's just like who you are. But I think it's the taking time out of your schedule to pursue other enjoyments outside of work that's important. Yeah. 
I have seen that one thing that I don't like is when I need to cancel something that relates to going and playing football, soccer. I don't like that. Like as much, but then I also have to realize like the prioritization of everything. But I think that's healthy. Well, let's, I'm, this is not directly work related, but it is, it's like, oh, if you have someone that's in town and they want to eat dinner, do I cancel? Like not my dinner, like cancel going to play footy. You know, those are things like, but I think ultimately my takeaway, because I think it's like, this is kind of going around in circles a bit because you have your perspective. I have my perspective. And I actually predicted that this would be the outcome is like, we just have different vantage points on it. And I think at the end of the day, my takeaway is, are you going to be happy with what you do? Are you satisfied with the work? And will you ever look back and wish you put more time and effort into it? And if you have an answer to all those things without any uncertainty, then you're on the right path. You know, that, that is, there is no other way around it. I always say that I, maybe when I was younger, I would always look down on people who didn't have that same level of drive that I might have had. But then I realized like back to that Jay-Z quote, like who really cares? Like, you know, as long as you're happy, then it is what it is. Right. There's no point in me trying to push you. Like I will 100% if you seek help or if you want to potentially achieve more and you're not sure where, 100% down. But in my experience, and I've seen this more and more recently as I get older and people are like looking for advice or whatever. And like the advice rarely translates into execution. And I think that's a little bit unfortunate. I kind of get bummed about that. My summation, which I think actually is in agreement with yours, is that each of us has to figure out what work routine works best for yourself and what makes someone else happy isn't what's going to make me happy. You know, self-care for you looks different from self-care for me. And if you are able to provide adequate care for yourself while working, you know, a hundred hours, whatever hours it is, then that's fine. That's for you. But I need to know for myself, what is my limit? I need to know. Maybe my limit is the same as yours, but I just have to be aware that sometimes it might not be. And that's like kind of my advice to, I think we are still young. Like we're not, you know, like David Hansen base camp, he's obviously at a different stage in life with family and other considerations, but I'm just going to say this as well for younger people. I think it's easy to enter a working environment and glorify that workaholism without thought. Maybe you do become someone who can work a lot, but you cannot just adopt it for yourself. Like unless you believe in it. But, but that's what I'm saying is that I just think that there is a susceptibility in the culture to buy into it without having thought it through. Yeah. That I, I know we're going in circles. Anyway, that's my summation. That's well, my takeaway. One thing, and one thing I would also say though, is that your propensity to work long, hard hours is a lot easier when you're younger. But I also think it's important that, you know, you said, oh, maybe my limit is a hundred hours. I'm not saying I work hundred hours, by the way, but like, Let's say you, you know, it's a lot of hours. You'll never know if you get to a hundred hours unless you actually do it. You know what I mean? And like, you can say like, maybe it is, but it's still theoretical. Like, you know, there, there are certain things where maybe there's a balance between, Hey, I'm not working. I'm working more than 40 and my sweet spot is 65 hours because I feel like I'm in a good place. Um, all that stuff. And I think that's, that's, that's really important is that you can always scale down. Like, I always use this example, like a Ferrari can drive fast and it can drive slow. A Honda Civic can only drive slow, right? 
can and I just you want throw, that range. Can I just throw in something here? But we didn't even define what work is because I think both of us know what our own work looks like. I think that there is a part of Hong Kong local culture that just equates time in the office as work. Our Asian culture. That's not yeah. work. Yeah. Right. Like hard work could be not just the work you spend on your full time, but work that you spend on a personal project. Yeah. It's just what I consider not, you know, like going to play a sport probably isn't a work unless you're a professional athlete, but that's what we mean yeah. by work. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not going to be helpful to anyone if you are a young person and you just decide like, I'm going to be at the agency every day for 11 hours. Like that's my commitment. Yeah. Like that's not, that's just dumb. Like but, you can't put a limit. To that point, everything else becomes that much easier after. That's no, all but I like, can What say. I'm saying is that you can't arbitrarily say like 11 hours and not think about like what the work is, you know? It's yeah, not yeah. about time. Like if if there isn't work to be done, like don't just spend. Yeah, yeah. 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 I just wanted to clarify, like yeah. that's not hard work either. You happy? This is a long one. Yeah. I mean, there was good stuff. Should we cap it off there, Sharice? I feel like the beginning was a little bit low energy for me. I think, I don't know. I'm not tired, but I'm just Do you like, listen back? Besides editing, do you listen back to the final product? I don't. What do you, what is your takeaway? <laughs> I don't because I've already listened to it. Like I've listened yeah, yeah, to yeah. it like two, three times. Yeah. But like, okay. When you edit, you go back and forth, right? I have to play back for the show notes as well to make sure the timestamps roughly match uh, up. But you sort of skip around. You don't listen to it like sitting all so the way like, through it's at like 10x speed. Right. So I can tell you this, and this is not something you need to work on necessarily, but- I love feedback. I always sound like I have more energy than you. I think maybe because I'm so calculating my thoughts sometimes that I, I'm- I think that this is just our tone of voice. Noted. <laughs> let's, cap, I mean- let's cap off on uh, something Eugene needs to work on next week for the- <laughs> For the foreseeable future. Because he's low energy. (laughs) Okay. All right. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon and our membership opportunities, you can visit us at macon.com where you can read stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture. Let me try this in a more upbeat tone of voice. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. In addition, if you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. I'm Eugene. (laughs) I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.